0: Many of you know I have two uh, teenage children, and so that means that I am reminded on the regular that I am not exactly up on popular culture. And so you're not gonna be surprised when I tell you that I heard nothing about, in 2018, about George Clooney being in a, a very significant, a very terrifying scooter accident in Italy. And maybe you didn't hear about that either. Did you hear about George Clooney's spill? Okay, one hand, good. All right, so, so none of us are up on what happened a few years ago with George Clooney, um, but somebody did send me an interview uh, that I read recently because he was talking about uh, now having gone through that near-death experience. I mean, literally, he was hit head-on by a car. It was amazing that he wasn't more, um, you know, mortally wounded. So somebody sent me an interview with him talking about death and the afterlife and his cr- confrontation with some of that as he's thinking about it. And I, I tried not to be offended because the interview was actually on the AARP site, the Association of Retired Persons. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm only, I'm 46, but, um, but you know, it's probably, I'm, I'm already in the shadow of the AARP. Um, so... They sent me this interview, and um, so here's what, here's what Clooney said. He said, I'm not particularly a religious guy, but as you get older and you go through things, you start thinking. And he used this, this imagery of like, you know, that, that maybe after this chassis is done, that, that it's not really done. Like maybe there's something else. He said, but really the way I think about it is you, what you want to do is just put your energy into others. You want to be putting your energy into others. And my version of it, it, it tells me this, that put down your phone and buy real estate, and shun pre-made dressings, and write letters, and repair my house, and gather my loved ones around a big round table, and also be curious about others. So that's kind of what he, what he took away from having confronted the possibility of an afterlife, thinking about that. And all those are reasonable things, Nothing wrong with any of those, except I've had some pretty good pre-made dressings. I don't know about you, but um, maybe my tastes aren't very refined. But I wonder if his version, let's think about this for a minute. I wonder if his version is functionally that different from a lot of modern Western Christians. When we think about what we're investing in, putting our energy in. way we're thinking about the continuity between the life we live now and the life to come. One which is standard to Christian belief and tradition. That there is a life to come and that there is a continuity between now and then. I wonder what our imagination is for life and for mortality and for accountability in this life and for responsibility in this life. And we get to be confronted with that, in particular with some of the parables Jesus is telling on his way to Jerusalem. That Luke is building some tension in these parables. It's another kind of dark parable as Jesus is moving toward Jerusalem, where he's instructing his own disciples, where he's obviously confronting and challenging the religious leaders of the day, but also some of the broader sensibilities that are there. And the question for us, really, when we we hear something like this, so far away from Jesus telling this story, is are we willing to reimagine each time we are confronted with Jesus' words, every time and every word, are we willing to reimagine what we think, even if it's challenging. Are we willing to do that? Jesus is actually, as I mentioned last week, he's comparing and contrasting the ways of earth with the will of heaven. The ways of earth with the will of heaven. And so right here in his face are some people, the the Sadducees, some religious rulers who have a, a pretty broad influence, especially more broadly culturally, among uh, maybe Greeks who have been who have been converted to Judaism, and they don't believe in eternity, they don't believe in the afterlife, uh, most of them, and so um, they also broadly the idea was that if you are rich in this life, then God favors you more. This was the conception, the imagination that they shared: that if you were rich, so you've done something right, or maybe God just has some special. Um, for you. And it's clear. We can judge it. We can see. And if you're poor, then clearly somehow or another the curse has fallen upon you more, more heavily. And so what it ends up being is a value system of who matters more and who matters less. And so there's that value system And Jesus carries it right into the popular conception of Hades, which for broadly in the Jewish imagination was not hell as we conceive it, which most of our concepts about hell are are rooted in a a very medieval kind of um, mythology to some extent. You know, we've, we've extrapolated quite a bit on what we actually do get from what the scriptures teach. And so Jesus is entering into their popular conception, to begin asking the fundamental question and challenging their imagination about who matters, right? Who's blessed? Who's cursed? And how is this life and what we do with it tethered to the life to come in the presence of God and on the other side of judgment? So it's a call to reimagine, to see the continuity of earth and heaven in the confrontation of our ways and God's. One of my favorite theologians is a guy named Kevin Van Hooser. He's up at Trinity uh, near Chicago, Deerfield. And he's described theology or or, or the the study of God or the study of Scripture. Um, He said, theology can be defined as the attempt to imagine God's imaginings after him. And you might be like, that's really abstract and obscure. And that, expound on that a little bit. Feels maybe a little esoteric. It's actually pretty simple, the attempt to imagine God's imaginings after him. Matthew 18, Jesus tells his disciples, let me try to make it simple. Jesus tells his disciples what he says, unless you become like little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So what's profound about that, what's true about that, is the fact that children rely on the constant meaning making and the defining that their parents do for them children have a vivid imagination they they have elaborate ideas don't they and you're like where does that even come from where is it coming from but what are they in need of they're in need of a grounding in reality not a stripping of their wonder or of their imagination but they need another imagination by which to live And so when Jesus says that, he's calling us to trust in the meaning and interpretation that goes with the wonder and the imagination that we have. This is what we rely on God for. We children don't know or understand everything. And I know some of you children believe that you do. And you know what? I'm glad you're here. Um, I still think I know and understand everything. So you know what? We're the same. But the truth is we don't need to know or understand everything. This is the the biblical kind of knowing is this that we just need to know that someone knows. That God knows. Our children need to know that we know and we find great great security and they find great security and safety and space and freedom in knowing that the things are known. That is biblical knowing. The imagination that God has the pictures that he paints the word that he gives us is that by which we understand the world and so then Jesus tells these stories parables parabolae which just is is actually a picture of of something being thrown together pieces and parts coming together from all over the place and Jesus brings these images together to shape imagination and and as I said it's not a theology of hell that's not what we get from this, right? This is, we're not p- putting together a few things that Jesus or others said about the nature of hell because in their mind, they're not trying to give us, Jesus is not trying to give us the metaphysics or the logistics of hell. This is how it works. It's simply not what he's doing. He's borrowing their, their popular conception. But There are some things to consider, and we'll consider them in a minute. It's also not just a basic ethic of reversal that he's dealing with here. It's like, okay, so the, the rich... The afterlife, they had stuff now, they're not having stuff then. The the poor, they don't have stuff now, they're going to have stuff then. It's just a basic, basic ethic of reversal. No, that's not it. But he is challenging our values. He's challenging our values. And he's telling a story that is not just rich, poor, as a comparison, but a relationship between the two. A very rich man, a very self-centered man, and a man completely dependent. And so that's what Jesus is providing imagery for, to provoke our preconceptions. Jesus is trying to provoke their and our commitments to ways of thinking, to our imagination. So, what does it look like when the will of heaven interrupts the ways of earth? These are the stories Jesus is telling, and he's challenging us to seek to unify in our lives the ways of earth with the will of heaven. We pray it every Sunday. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So how do we do this in our lives? Let me, let me just walk through this parable somewhat briefly. Look, I could, I could, we could teach on this for two hours. You could do a whole class on this probably, right? So just bear with me. I'm going to try to move through this relatively quickly, give you some details, and then try to wrap this up. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. So which is almost unheard of. He's doing this every day. He's wearing his finest clothes like, you know, his Sunday best. He's wearing what you'd wear to festivals and all that every day at home. He's not in his pajamas. But here's the thing. He's also wearing his fine underwear. And I think Jesus is being a little bit funny here. He's wearing his fine linens under there too. He's just all about himself. Jesus is talking about the guy wearing his finest underwear every day. Which is kind of funny, except that at the same time, he talks about what Lazarus is wearing, which is sores, isn't he? And there is Lazarus every day laid, a poor man laid at this man's gate, and he desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. And now, you know, it might be simply that someone would bring him something as they found it when they were done eating, or often they would use bread as their utensils and then throw the bread away. And so maybe, they just, maybe it's, they'll bring him the, the, the forks, so to speak, for him to eat later when they're done with him. It says, More even, Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So instead of being in the feast with all his friends, wearing his finest and all of that, he's hit sores, and his guests, so to speak, his company are dogs. So Jesus is building a very strong contrast here. And it says then that the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. The poor man dies, probably no funeral, no no burial service, nothing to honor him. This man has his whole burial service. And then they find this massive contrast that's happening here. Lazarus is there and then he sees. And again, this is not telling us sort of how the geography of heaven works or of hell works or of Hades works that okay, well some people are here and some people are there and you can see them. Every day this man saw Lazarus at his gate. And now in this reversal, in this torment, every day he must see what it now means. He must see Lazarus now. And then it says he called out Father Abraham, which is important, Let me, I'll tell you that in a minute, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. So even still, get Lazarus to do this for me, Right? Get Lazarus, send Lazarus to do this for me. And Obviously, he's, fed, he's feasted sumptuously and now he will settle for a drop of water. But send Lazarus to do this for me. And he says, Father Abraham, and then Father Abraham, it says, but Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. The idea it's important here, Jesus is, is being pretty subversive and pretty confrontational when he says here, to the, the you know, that, that it puts Abraham there and that Father Abraham and child remember, because the idea would be that if you were a child of Abraham, this could never befall you. Just by your ethnicity alone or by your status alone, like this is how could this possibly be? And what Jesus is saying, that's not it. That's not how. Though you've understood yourself as a child of Abraham, ultimately, the life you lived. The way you saw things and the way, in fact, you saw another child of Abraham has begun to shape what you're experiencing. And then he says this. This is Abraham still talking in verse 26. says, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Now, isn't this interesting? Now, again, this is not the sort of the logistics and the architecture, the layout of hell. There's another gate. There's another barrier, a chasm. The very thing that this man perpetuated in his life is now perpetuated in hell. The gate exists, and now he finds his own self begging at it. The hell he created for Lazarus, you could put it this way, on earth, or the hell he allowed or the, the hell that existed by the values that he held, now perpetuate in the hell ahead of him. C.S. Lewis once said in The Problem of Pain, he said that hell, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. And what this suggests is the idea that the life that we have made, ultimately the the. the, the help that we have needed or denied, the truth that we have accepted or denied, the, the ultimately what we have built, the hell potentially that we have created by something as um, you know, powerfully painful for someone like Lazarus. This gate that he lived his life by, this separation now persists and continues. He's still so vitally focused on himself and now he has what he wanted, but it's the inverse and it's painful and it's powerful in this imagery there he is and there's a gate and there he finds himself begging on the other side of it C.S. Lewis also said that he was talking about in the great divorce he said that hell in some sense is like people moving in to a neighborhood building houses further and trying to get as far away from one another as possible for their own isolation and seemingly their own benefit. He said, but even that alone is like lives in a tiny crack in the sidewalk of the great community that awaits those who would receive that which God is giving. But it's an isolation. And it's a deceit that this man has followed what he thought was ultimately his pleasure. So, we find out that ultimately what Jesus is doing and, and we get this, Jesus takes it to another level in verses 30 and 31, doesn't he? He's, he begins to talk about, he said, uh, he talks about the fact that, uh, you know, actually beginning in verse 27, he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers. So he's still wanting to send Lazarus, isn't he? For I have five brothers so that, they, uh, that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said they have Moses, and the prophets let them hear them. Fundamentally, they're not in a place to be hearing and understanding. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. So Jesus is foreshadowing his own role right there in front of people who themselves would reject. Would reject ultimately the one who would rise from the dead. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Because here are the facts. The life by which they're living, they haven't heard Moses and the prophets even. They haven't built a life around the values, that e- their own values that existed. They've built something else. They've actually built a hell. And so this full revelation and foreshadowing comes Uh, you know is is spoken to and comes through Jesus teaching and and it reveals their posture they're not needy they're not contingent they're not humble they're not in the posture of true children of Abraham maybe not even real children in the sense that I talked about not willing not malleable I heard this this week someone said when truth conflicts with narrative the truth ends up apologizing when truth conflicts often with our narrative, or someone else's narrative and I think it's so profoundly true in our culture the truth ends up apologizing. But here in this case, Jesus is the truth is not apologizing. They have a narrative for how the world works. They have a narrative even for how the afterlife might work, and who gets the reward and who is valuable. And the truth is not apologizing in this case. Jesus is recovering a truth an imagination. A narrative shaped by the will of heaven. And what is he doing? He's looking for leadership. He's looking for a people. He's looking to recover the people of God who will, in the prophecy of Amos, who will do justice at the gate. Who will have the heart of God for such things. And I haven't told you what I think is probably the most important detail um, really in this whole story. Lazarus is the only person in any of Jesus' parables who's given a name. He has a name. Not only is that a really dignifying thing, which is a beautiful thing in and of itself, but what does it mean? In the Hebrew, he is Elazar. He's the one God helps. And now in our judgment, we might look and say the same thing that that maybe they would say is clearly God is not helping this man. And he's poor, and that's not the one God helps. Look at at the rich man. That's the one God is helping. And Jesus is saying, no, that is not the one God is helping. Your imagination is too small. Your understanding is too narrow. Your sense of what life and death and life to come mean are too small. Because for us, we we, want to say it even in our day. Well, the presence of suffering must mean the absence of God. And Jesus is saying, no. Lazarus is the one who God helps. And so then what does that mean for us? What does it mean for us? If Lazarus is the one God helps, how should we see things? How should we see the poor? How should we see those who can't seem to dig themselves out of the situation? Those who are passive, those who seem unimportant, those who are weak and suffering. How should we want our society to operate? And ultimately, instead of shaking our fist at God very often in the sense of injustice and what have you, how, the call for us is to have an imagination that God will ultimately bring justice. God will do justice at the gate, as Amos 5 says. And he will have people who are willing to pay attention to their own gates. Bart Ehrman is a, uh, a scholar of religion, history of religion. He's at Um, chapel hill and he wrote a book um, called the triumph of christianity and the main concern and focus of that book is not how did christianity once it came to power and influence how did it how did it grow how did it expand and how did it triumph but how did it do this in such obscurity and difficulty and he came to this conclusion before constantine and then before gregory of nyssa sort of began to see that the church was wielding political power how did the church grow there's one word, compassion. Compassion. They took Jesus seriously that if Lazarus is the one God helps and God's blessing is upon the poor and God's blessing is upon the weak and upon the forgotten and upon the marginalized and upon the sick, then if that's the one God helps, then who should we help? Who should we care about? For whom are we responsible and in our lives accountable? We can't solve the problem of of world hunger, of poverty. Jesus said, you'll have the poor with you always. And I think we need to hear that not just as, okay, well, they're always going to be there, but actually you will have the poor with you always. They might not be economically poor, but you will have someone at your gate. Someone we need to know be aware of that God is helping. It doesn't look like it, but God is helping and God loves and will love into this ultimate eternity and who will bless and is blessing. And it might just be that God is helping them through you. This is the kind of leadership, this is the kind of people that Jesus was trying to recover from an imagination that was failing Moses and the prophets and ultimately the gospel and the hope we have in the world to come. So what might we do as I asked and posed this question? Are we open to the imagination? To the challenge to reimagine how we're thinking about our lives, the potential gates in our lives, and those who live in proximity to us that God is saying to you and to me, I am helping them. What does this mean to you? What does this mean to you? Lord, help it to mean more to us. We, we know that the problems of the world are overwhelming and not one of us can fix it. But as we say continually, it matters. The local matters beyond anything. And we certainly want policy and we want, we want things in our, in our, we want uh, operations and we want laws, we want other things that will govern justice and bring about goodness for all and provision and mutuality. But the fact of the matter is, is it really must begin with us saying, who is at my gate? And how can I help those you're helping? You love. Lord, we pray, even so, come Lord Jesus and bring the world, bring the life to come where it is evident to us that you have loved those who maybe have seemed unloved and that you have a world that awaits where it may truly be a great reversal for some of us. But Lord, right now, put in our hearts and our minds and on our lips the world that you want, and let our ways, the ways of the earth that we trod, obey the will of heaven. We need your help. We are the ones who need help. So help us to imagine. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.